Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. This week marks a significant milestone. Thousands of doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine have arrived in several provinces, and a handful of people have received the first doses. It's the start of the largest immunization rollout in Canadian history. Other vaccines will soon follow. It's going to take months before there's enough supply for all Canadians who want the vaccine to get it. In the meantime, provinces and territories have to prioritize who gets immunized first. The arrival of a vaccine has raised many questions, from why different people get the first shots in different provinces, to concerns about potential allergic reactions or adverse side effects when our turn finally comes. And as we've talked about before, there's already a lot of misinformation out there. To help us get the right information based on science, our guest today is Dr. Caroline Quash. Dr. Quash is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and medical microbiologist from Chus St. Justine in Montreal. She's a familiar voice to many regular dose listeners, but some of you may not know she's also the chair of Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization. She'll help us answer the question, now that the first COVID vaccine is here, what do I need to know? Dr. Quash, welcome back to The Dose. Thank you. Good morning. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization came up with the recommendations on who should get the COVID-19 vaccine first, but different provinces seem to be taking different approaches. In Quebec, long-term residents are getting the first shots. In other provinces, including Ontario and Alberta, it's people who work in long-term care. Caroline, can you talk about the science behind those different decisions? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not sure it's the science more than the logistics, right? So what NACI came up with was a priority list of people who could be or who should be vaccinated first. And that was to start with those most vulnerable based on the burden of illness, but also surveys that were done with Canadians and with stakeholders that all said that the groups that should be vaccinated first would be those that are most vulnerable. And when we looked at the data, when we did a systematic review that was um, performed by University of Alberta, we really saw that those at highest risk were those 70 years and over, and even more so if you were in a long-term care facility. So the list that NASI put out, given this you know, restricted number of vaccines, was to start with long-term care facilities and those taking care of them. However, with the Pfizer vaccine that requires a ultra-low temperature at minus 80, some provinces just realized that it was impossible to start with long-term care facilities and so decided to start with those taking care of those um, uh, residents. So I think, you know, it's, it's basically more a logistic issue than a scientific issue. So it comes down to different approaches to infection control, whether you immunize the vulnerable person directly or you immunize the people who come into contact with them and could therefore transmit the infection from the community to them. Correct. However, one of the caveat I would say is that with the Pfizer vaccine at this point in time, given the phase three we have, there's no yet evidence that once you're vaccinated that you are also protected from asymptomatic infections and virus shedding. Therefore, we hope that this vaccine, like others, will also protect against that. 
but there is nothing that will better protect someone than being protected directly. Another difference we're seeing between provinces is how they're managing the first shipments of the vaccine. You know, this vaccine from Pfizer BioNTech requires two doses a few weeks apart. Ontario is holding back enough vaccine right now to make sure that they have the second dose to give to people who got the first dose. But I noticed that British Columbia plans to use all their supply to give the first dose to more people, trusting that the manufacturer will deliver that second dose in time. What are your thoughts on those two strategies? I think, again, it's to look at the same um, data. So what was published this past week in the New England um, by Pfizer and BioNTech showed that there, after a first dose of vaccine, you had at least 50 to 60 percent efficacy. And that when you looked at the curves of those vaccinated and those who received placebo, these curves started to to diverge at 12 days after the first dose. So that means that really, you know, you're getting one dose of a vaccine and you're having already some protection. The question nobody has in hand is how long does that protection last if you don't get that second dose? So at that point in time, it's really a matter of managing your risk. So some provinces are more comfortable to say, I think I'm going to get a second dose in time to be able to vaccinate everybody to whom I gave a first dose to. Um, and others are saying, I'm not taking the risk and I want those that need to be protected to be really well protected and not have to wonder if this protection is going to fade away in time. So, you know, both approaches are, are fine. It's just a matter of how you want to manage your risk. And as the, the NACI document states repeatedly, all of this is based on, on lack of complete evidence. And as more evidence occurs, you know, it may eventually become clear that, that one dose of the, of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine provides adequate protection for a lot of people. You're absolutely right on that one, but because we don't know, we can't just say one dose is enough. So having that, you know, possibility to say we're going to start with one dose and then protect more people so that there's some more, much more impact on public health is also a very uh, reasonable approach. The logistics of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine are exceptionally complex, as you've already alluded to. It has to be kept at ultra freezing temperatures. What happens when it reaches the location where people are being vaccinated? It, it can't just go straight into people's arms from an ultra frozen state, can it? Oh, no, absolutely not. So you really have to let it thaw and you need to dilute it. So it's a vaccine that's lyophilized. And so you need to add the dilutant into the vial. And then once you start using it, it's stable for six hours at room temperature. You know, once you, you, you poke into that vial. So you really have to be organized and know that your people are going to be lined up. You know, it's not just a just let's walk in clinic type of thing. You really need your appointments um, and, and everything to be organized ahead of time so that there's no waste in this precious vaccine. Once other vaccines that don't require such specialized freezing equipment are approved and arrive in Canada, and of course I'm thinking of the Moderna vaccine, which whose approval is imminent, um, how could that affect who's next in line for the vaccine? Well, then I think that uh, long-term care facilities will be added to the list because at that point in time, you know, you can use a regular freezer and the Moderna vaccine is stable also in the fridge for a longer period of time. So, you know, transport is not going to be as much as an issue and that will increase the, the, the possibilities. 
And of course, uh, people from Quebec who are listening to this, uh, Quebec long-term care facilities have been prioritized. That's a policy that the provincial government in Quebec decided to make. They, they have, but it, we're only, we've only started with a few places. So currently there's a pilot trial to make sure that uh, vaccinating in long-term care facility works. So far, well, we started yesterday. It seems to work. I want to turn now to the other big questions Canadians have. There were a couple of allergic reactions reported uh, when the UK started its vaccination program. Can you put those into context? What, what's the guidance for people who have allergies? Yeah, absolutely. So when um, Health Canada spoke to the MHRA in uh, the UK, what seemed to have happened is that these two people had multiple allergies and were known to be anaphylactic to a lot of products. What Health Canada has decided to do and what NASI has also done was to really stick to anaphylaxis of components in the vaccine or its container. And what we think is that it's polyethylene glycol that is the culprit here, which is a, a substance that is known to cause um, important allergies. And so people who are known to be allergic to PEG um, should consult their physician before getting this vaccine and we're not going to give it to them. But we're, we haven't gone um, as broad as the UK to say everybody who has a known anaphylaxis to something should not get vaccinated. When we spoke to the allergist on the NASI committee, um, Dr. Hildebrand said, you know what, peanut allergies have nothing to do with this and so I'm not worried in any way. Uh, polyethylene glycol is used quite commonly in medications, am I right? It is. It is also part of your uh, colonoscopy prep. Yep. It's part of some of those uh, um, skincare products. So in theory, you know, you people who are allergic to PEG should already know because it's everywhere in products that we use daily. There are some people who have been allergic to vaccines in the past because they're allergic to eggs. Uh, are eggs used at all in the manufacture of either the uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, or Moderna vaccines? No, no eggs in here. Not a problem. And uh, as you saw, I mean, most of the people who are known allergic to eggs are now allowed to get most of the vaccine. So whether it is uh, influenza or MMR that are grown on eggs, it's not a contraindication anymore. While we're talking about this, are there any contraindications that people should be aware of that, that if they're either re they're receiving some other treatment, they should not be getting uh, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine or the Moderna vaccine for that matter? So not in terms of allergies, unless you're, you're not allergic to a component of the vaccine, but in terms of uh, precautions, because we don't have a lot of data on immunosuppressed participants, on participants with autoimmune disorders, pregnant women and children, we've decided to be more prudent on those groups and really say, you know, before you get vaccinated, just just discuss it with your healthcare worker to make sure that that benefits outweigh risk. And in that context, then, you know, we think it's, it's safe enough, but we don't have enough data to just say everybody take it without uh, talking about it with your physician first. And to be clear, your document, the NASI document, does not say you cannot have these vaccines if you're pregnant, breastfeeding, or immunosuppressed. It's just that we don't have a lot of data yet to know that it's either safe or effective. Correct. So we're not recommending it off the bat. But what we say is that once you discuss it with your healthcare provider, then absolutely you can get it if benefits outweigh risk. And of course, as you said before, um, Brian, as we get more data on this vaccine, because it's going to start being used widely, then we, NASI, will adjust their recommendation. We're just, we just don't want to say something about a, an element that we have no data on. 
It, it's just that I noticed, for instance, that uh, there have been several uh, people who've been quite prominent on social media. I'm thinking of uh, Vinit Arora, who is an internist at the University of Chicago. She's a prominent medical educator. She also happens to be a breastfeeding mom. And she said she has every intention of getting the, the COVID-19 vaccine now while she's breastfeeding. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's fine. And honestly, to me, breastfeeding is not as much as an issue. I mean, the baby is out, so we don't have any evidence that the vaccine goes through breast milk. I think it's safe enough to, to, for breastfeeding, but we didn't have data, so we just, you know, wrote that out. And uh, for people who are immunosuppressed, and I've had a lot of people on social media who've asked me, uh, you know, if I'm immunosuppressed, can I get these vaccines? The Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and the Moderna vaccines are messenger RNA, mRNA vaccines. They're not live or attenuated vaccines. They're not derived from, from, from virus particles. Correct. So you're absolutely right. The only downside would be that maybe you don't respond as well to it because you're immunosuppressed. But we're not expecting any adverse events because you're immunosuppressed. As you said, it's not a live vaccine. That thing is not replicating. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Damon Fairless, host of Hunting Warhead from CBC Podcasts and the Norwegian newspaper VG. Hunting Warhead follows a global team of police and journalists as they attempt to dismantle a massive network of predators on the dark web. Winner of the grand prize for best investigative reporting at the New York festivals and recommended by The Guardian, Vulture, and The Globe and Mail, you can find Hunting Warhead on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to turn to the issue of misinformation. You've explained the rare allergy to, to PEG, to polyethylene glycol. A prominent anti-vaccination group in the U.S. is raising alarms about that and claiming that a significant proportion of the population is likely allergic to it. What can you tell people who are seeing that kind of claim pop up in their social media feeds? Yeah, well, first, I've stopped following social media for a reason. Um, second, I think you have to be very careful about what people say. Um, some people will just, you know, write something without really any um, scientific evidence, I would say, you know, if you have any questions, speak to your healthcare provider. That's the person who knows most about things and who can research it with you. Don't take anything for granted unless, you know, you've researched it. But that's a common tactic used by anti-vaccination groups to foster vaccine hesitancy, taking information out of context or making highly exaggerated claims about small potential harms. There's also the spreading of fear-based claims that are just not true. For instance, claiming that the messenger RNA vaccines will alter people's DNA. Can you explain for us quickly why that's simply not possible? Yeah, so mes the messenger RNA is just really a, a message, right? And so once you inject it into people within five to seven minutes, that messenger RNA is, de is destroyed by your own system. What it does, though, is that it's it's being swallowed in by your cells and it's it doesn't integrate into your DNA. It's just the, the message is, is uptaken, I guess, in your cell. And then your cell will produce the protein S that will then be the antigen that your antibodies will be produced against. And so this mRNA doesn't stay for long in you and doesn't um, integrate in your genome. So it can't really change anything in your genetics. It's also not DNA, is it? It's not DNA, it's RNA, and it's just a messenger. And, it, and the reason why we need minus 80 is because it's so labile. So you look at it a little bit uh, sideways, you shake it a bit too much, and you heat it a bit too much, and it's just destroyed. What are some of the things we need to be doing to combat uh, that and help people who may be hesitant about taking the vaccine to get accurate information? 
Well, I think, you know, it's it's our responsibilities as scientists to be transparent about what we know, what we don't know, to give interviews and to talk to you, Brian, um, so that the, the message is well understood. It's also our role as physicians and clinicians to speak to our patients, to, again, be informed about what's coming up. So read the NACI statements, read the Canadian Immunization Guide when it'll come out, read the recommendation from your province and territory to be able to discuss that with our patients when they have questions. And I think it's the only way to combat vaccine hesitancy is to really be frank about what we know, what we don't know about what's scientific and what's not, and and have that discussion with our patients. And we'll post a link uh, on this episode of The Dose at our website, cbc.ca slash whitecoat. When addressing vaccine hesitancy, which is an ever-increasing problem, how important is it to put into context the risks of not getting the vaccine and therefore increasing your risk of either getting COVID-19 or giving it to someone you care about? Yes, I think when you look at vaccine hesitancy, you're right. The, one of the, the most important reasons for people not to wanting to get vaccinated is because they think that they're not at risk of the disease. So some people are not at risk of disease, but what we've seen with COVID is that, you know, if you have underlying medical conditions and you're and you're 70 years and over, you know that you're at risk of complications. These that group usually doesn't ask twice and will be very happy to be vaccinated. In the younger population, however, we've still we've still seen people ending up in the ICU for no good reason. People having long um, COVID for no good reason. And sometimes those people with long COVID had a very mild COVID infection, but for some reason, their inflammatory system or something just is not um, uh, able, able to dampen the, the, the response afterwards. And people remain with dyspnea, so difficulty breathing, um, fatigue, and other symptoms for months. And so when you look at that in, and the sequelae that potentially will arise from COVID, I think you know, we all realize that we're at risk and that we're not taking any undue chances in our daily life. And therefore, the only way to go back to more or less normal living is to have a vaccine that will protect us. To me, it's, it's that burden of illness that people need to realize. Since you're a pediatric infectious disease specialist, I can't let you leave before asking you about children. We're hearing a lot of calls from pediatricians in both the U.S. and Canada about the urgency of clinical trials to ensure a safe and effective vaccine is available for kids. What can you tell us about that? So that's coming up. It's just that, you know, as in every vaccine development, we start with adults. And then when it's safe in adults, we move down to pediatrics. So a lot of trials are going to start and will include children. And and again, I think one have, has to realize that up until now, children did not have a large burden of illness. I mean, yes, they were sick with COVID. And yes, they were sometimes uh, transmitting it to their parents. Um, but, uh, you know, aside from some cases of MISC, we haven't had a lot of admissions and we haven't had death in Canada or, you know, maybe one in out west, which wasn't even you know, convincingly associated with COVID. So the urgency here was really to have a product to protect those that were most uh, at risk of complications, which were not children. But, you know, all that to say, we will have studies on children and eventually we might have a recommendation to vaccinate children, but it's not there yet. Remind us what MISC is. 
Oh, it's the uh, multi-inflammatory syndrome in children, um, which looks like Kawasaki um, and is an inflammatory syndrome that happens uh, two weeks or so after having had COVID. We think it's associated with COVID, but we don't have the proof yet in the sense that the causality has not been determined. And so far, I mean, in Canada, it's been you know, a, a few number of cases, not that many, given the number of children who have been infected with COVID up until now. And finally, although the vaccine is bringing us a great deal of hope, we have to remember that we're still in a pandemic and the vaccine isn't going to change anything uh, for a while. So what are your messages about what we need to do right now and in the months ahead to stay safe? We, we can't um, just say that everything is back to normal. We have to keep on doing the preventive measures that we've learned. So physical distancing, wearing a mask, not going to work or gather when we have any symptoms and get tested when you think you have COVID. That, that will remain until you know a fair portion of the population is vaccinated, which will not happen before the summer or the fall of 2021. So we're, you know, there's a light at the end of that tunnel, but that tunnel is still a little bit long. That's certainly an important reminder as we approach the holiday season. Dr. Caroline Quash, thank you so much for speaking to us once again on The Dose. Thank you very much. Have a good day. And you too. That was Dr. Caroline Quash. She's chair of Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization. She's also a pediatric infectious disease specialist and medical microbiologist from Chouz St. Justine in Montreal. Here's your dose of smart advice. The Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine has been approved for use in Canada, and the Moderna vaccine should be approved shortly. Others will follow. Right now, supplies of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine are extremely low. So at this early stage, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, or NACI, has recommended that priority be given to people most vulnerable to COVID-19 and the healthcare workers and PSWs who care for them. Those considered vulnerable include residents of long-term care and retirement homes, adults 70 years of age and older, and adults in Indigenous communities. Different provinces may distribute the vaccine to slightly different populations, based in part on the supply of vaccine and the availability of specialized freezing equipment for the Pfizer vaccine. Some of those decisions will change as more vaccines become available. From what we know so far, serious allergic reactions to the Pfizer vaccine are rare. Doctors think that when those rare allergic reactions have occurred, it's because the patient is allergic to polyethylene glycol, or PEG, which is used quite commonly in medications. Ask your healthcare provider if you're allergic to PEG. The Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine does not contain egg products, so an allergy to egg products is not a problem. Experts say that COVID-19 vaccines should not be offered to pregnant or breastfeeding women, adolescents 12 to 15 years of age, or people whose immune systems are suppressed. That's because they've been excluded from clinical studies, meaning there's no data about these groups yet. But they can receive the COVID-19 vaccine if the benefits outweigh any potential risk. So check with your healthcare provider if you belong to any of these groups. There's a lot of misinformation out there about the COVID-19 vaccines. The Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines are made from messenger RNA or mRNA. They do not contain DNA and will not change your DNA. We can't say for sure if either vaccine is safe in kids because these vaccines have not been tested in children. But we'll know better as those studies are carried out in the months ahead. The arrival of these vaccines is great news in the fight against COVID-19. 
but it's going to take months before a significant number of us get vaccinated. So as we approach the holiday season, it's more important than ever that we wear masks, wash our hands, and practice physical distancing. And this week on White Coat Black Art, we have a show about a successful program in Quebec that counsels new parents about vaccines and helps combat vaccine hesitancy in the process. We know you have many more questions about the COVID vaccine than we can answer in one episode. But don't worry, we'll have another dose about vaccines in the new year to make sure you get the information you need. Please continue to email us your great questions at the dose at cbc.ca. We also want to hear from you if you have other topics you'd like to hear on the dose. You can tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBC White Coat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can find The Dose and White Coat Black Art wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a favor and rate our shows highly so more people can find us. This episode of The Dose was produced by Nicole Ireland and Donna Dingwall with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.